Thank you, everyone. Um, thank you for that warm reception, especially after Cindy just said that I'm a UNC guy. Um, I imagine people are in a pretty good mood about the football game today, given how uh, the two teams are doing this year. So you can be generous in your uh, pity for the UNC folks. Um, so I'm going to spend the next few minutes telling you all about uh, this research that has gone on at UVA for over 50 years now uh, on uh, children who report memories of previous lives. And to give you an ex example, um, we got a letter one day from, whoops, hmm, uh, yes, but we've also lost the picture. Okay. <laughs> Okay, we will try that again. Um, so we got a letter one day from a mother in Oklahoma who said that she and her husband were just ordinary people. Uh, she worked in the county clerk's office. Her husband was a police officer. But their five-year-old boy for the last year had talked about a past life in Hollywood, and he would cry and beg his mother to take him back to his family in Hollywood. So to help him try to process this, uh, one day she went to the public library and checked out a couple of books on Hollywood. And they were looking through one one day when they came to this picture of uh, an old movie called Night After Night. And Ryan, her little boy, pointed to the, uh, the second fellow there and said, hey, Mama, that's George. We did a picture together. And then he pointed to the one on the far right and said, and hey, Mama, that's me. I found me. Well, the first person that he pointed to was uh, George Raft, who some people may remember. He's a quite well-known uh, actor back in his day. Uh, but the one on the far right that he said he had been was an extra with no lines in the movie. So Ryan's mom wrote me to see if I could help figure out who this person was. So I went to Oklahoma. I met with Ryan and his parents. They were very nice folks. And then after I came back, um, uh, we were trying to figure out who this person was. And meanwhile, Ryan's mom was emailing me, sometimes on a daily basis, with all the statements that Ryan was making about his past life. And, and he was describing quite a life that, frankly, uh, I thought was unlikely for an extra with no lines in the movie. <laughs> um, eventually, we were able to figure out who this was uh, with the help of a Hollywood archivist. So this archivist, she went to the uh, library of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and got all the materials they had on the movie Night After Night, most of which involved the stars. But then she came across uh, this picture, and on the back, it said, What the well-dressed racketeer will wear. Marty Martin playing a racketeer in Paramount's Night After Night with George Raft and the other stars gives a demonstration of underworld sartorial excellence. So then I watched the movie again to make sure that we had the right guy uh, and then later checked it out with Marty Martin's family and found out that this was indeed who Ryan had pointed to. So even though I thought it was quite unlikely that an extra had had the kind of life Ryan described, it turned out uh, that Marty Martin did. Um, Ryan said how he had danced on stage in New York, and Marty Martin danced on Broadway. Um, 
Ryan said that he then went to Hollywood and worked in the movies, which Marty Martin did mostly in dancing uh, in the movies. Ryan said that he worked at an agency, and uh, Marty Martin started a successful talent agency. Um, Ryan said that he saw the world from big boats and talked about seeing Paris, and Marty Martin and his wife went to Europe on the Queen Mary and then um, had this picture taken when they were in Paris. Um, Ryan said that he lived in a big house with a swimming pool, which Marty Martin did, and Ryan said that it had the word rock or mount in the street address, and Marty Martin lived on North Roxbury. Ryan also said one time that he didn't see why God would let you get to be 61 and then make you come back again as a baby, Um, which is kind of an interesting question, but... um, Marty Martin's death certificate said that he was only 59 when he died. Uh, So it looked like that was an item where Ryan was wrong. But then Martin's daughter and stepson both said that, in fact, he was 61. So I looked into it and found a passenger list, three census records, and two marriage listings that all showed ages that meant that, in fact, Marty Martin was 61 when he died and not 59. So even though the death certificate said 59, uh, uh, Ryan was right when he said that he was 61 when he died. Um, Now, I mentioned Marty Martin's daughter, and... um, she was only eight when he died, and he died in 1964, so um, I met with her, and by then she was in her late 50s, I guess, um, and went over all of Ryan's statements with her. There was a lot about her dad's life that she didn't know since she was only eight when he died, including she didn't know about one of his sisters even. Uh, but between talking with her and reviewing the records that we were able to get, we eventually verified that over 50 of Ryan's statements matched with Marty Martin's life. And then afterwards, we set up a meeting uh, so that Ryan could meet Marty Martin's daughter. And I have to say it was quite an awkward meeting. Uh, Ryan, he seemed very uncomfortable, and I think he was just sort of overwhelmed with the whole thing. Uh, But then afterwards, he went to the building where Marty Martin's talent agency had been and, and had a great time there. And then... Uh, If you notice with um, Marty Martin, the pictures from later on in his life, he had these glasses with thick rims. Well, after this trip, Ryan started wearing glasses. I think these were 3D glasses he'd gotten from a movie theater. But he started wearing what he called his agent glasses. And his shirt says, they'll make a movie about me someday. Um, I don't know... If that's true, but he was, uh, his case is featured on the NBC Nightly News, and currently uh, they're planning to feature his case in an episode on a new Netflix series. Um, So that was all uh, eight years ago, so he's now 14. He's doing very well. Uh, He does not talk about his past life anymore, but but he's completely convinced that that he remembered one. So... Um, You may be wondering how Mr. Jefferson's university uh, came to start doing this work. So the story starts uh, with Ian Stevenson. Um, He came here to be chairman of the Department of Psychiatry uh, back in the late 1950s. Uh, In the middle of a very successful mainstream career, he had dozens of publications to his credit when he came here. But he also had an interest in parapsychology, And once he got here, um, he got intrigued by these reports he had heard of children talking about past lives. So he decided to go investigate. Now, these are ones from various parts of the world. Uh, But his first trip, he'd heard about five cases in India. And he went there for a month and found 25 cases. And he got similar results in Sri Lanka. And he realized that this phenomenon was much more common than anyone, at least in the West, had any idea about, um, and and got quite intrigued. Well, after he published his first paper on these topics, that paper came to the attention of a man named Chester Carlson. Uh, Chester Carlson invented the Xerox machine, and apparently the early versions looked quite a bit different from modern-day Xerox machines, but uh, he, of course, is quite wealthy, and he started funding Ian's work. 
uh, to the point that Ian eventually stepped down as chairman of the department uh, back in 1967 and started a small research division, uh, what is now called the Division of Perceptual Studies, or DOPS for short. And um, then Ian spent the bulk of the next 35 years uh, studying these cases. And um, he went to various places, um, mostly in Asia, uh, but other continents as well. And he always used a very careful, methodical approach. He never assumed that a case was due to reincarnation. Instead, he tried to determine as much as he could exactly what had happened in each case, what the child had said, how well those statements matched with a past life. And, and that's the approach that we still use today. So um, I may not say alleged memories or apparent memories as I talk about these things, uh, but we can certainly consider it an open question as, as we approach every case. Uh, so Ian wrote numerous books about this uh, phenomenon and, and many papers. Um, a couple of his books were reviewed in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, which, of course, is one of the leading medical journals in the world. Um, one of them in particular, uh, JAMA wrote, in regard to reincarnation, he has painstakingly and unemotionally collected a detailed series of cases from India, cases in which the evidence is difficult to explain on any other grounds. He has placed on record a large amount of data that cannot be ignored. Now, the latter part of that turned out not really to be true in the sense that many people did ignore the data. Um, <clears throat> but that did not stop Ian. He, he kept working. Uh, he finally attire, uh, retired officially in 2002. He was in his 80s then. Even after he retired, he took one more final trip to India. Um, his wife said at one point that she didn't mind him taking the trips. She just wished that he would stop saying that each one was going to be his final trip. Um, and then he passed away in 2007, uh, remaining active almost until the very end. He, his last paper uh, was published the year before he died, and, and it's a wonderful summary of, of his uh, work. And, and he finished it uh, with these words. So his last published words were, Let no one think that I know the answer. I am still seeking. Uh, which I thought was a rather nice way to uh, to go out. Um, as for DOPS, uh, with the help of other donations and other bequests, we, we are still going. Uh, so this is our current home. We, uh, we're in an old clapboard house on Wartland Street for many years, but about 10 years ago we moved uh, downtown. Uh, we have several suites in, in the Randolph building. Uh, they include the Ian Stevenson Memorial Library, uh, where we have several thousand uh, very interesting books. Uh, we also now have a neuroimaging lab uh, where uh, the folks there, with the help of another donor, um, will do things like measuring EEG for people who are trying to do an extraordinary event like an out-of-body experience or something like that, and, and we're measuring what, what the brain is, is doing while, while they're experiencing that. Uh, we are also, of course, continuing the work on, on children and their past life memories, and, and that's where uh, I have focused my attentions. Um, to tell you about some of the typical features of these cases, um, so they typically involve very young children who spontaneously start talking about a past life. So this work does not involve hypnotic regression, uh, and in fact, we're rather skeptical of hypnotic regression. But instead, these kids just spontaneously start coming out with these things, typically describing a very recent, ordinary life. Um, they are not talking about being kings or queens or Cleopatra or anything like that. Um, almost never talk about being famous people, uh, but rather somebody who lived an ordinary life, um, who, who died in the recent past. Now, Ryan's case is a bit of an exception, but the average interval between the Birth of the, uh, between the death of the previous person and the birth of the child is only four and a half years. Uh, so it's typically quite a recent life. Some of the kids talk about being a deceased family member, like a, a grandparent or, or sometimes a, a sibling who has died young. 
but others, like Ryan, describe being a stranger in another location. And if the kids give enough details like the name of that location, uh, then people have often gone there and found that, in fact, somebody did live and die whose life matches the statements that the child gave. In that situation, we call it a solved case. Uh, some of the kids will talk about a past life, but no one's able to verify that the details actually match somebody who lived. In that case, we said it's unsolved. Uh, we caught plenty of both kinds in our collection, but two-thirds of the ones that we've studied uh, are solved. Uh, the one part of the life that is often out of the ordinary is how the previous person died. So in 70% of the cases, the previous person died by unnatural means, meaning uh, murder, suicide, combat, accident, that sort of thing. So that certainly seems to be an important part of this phenomenon. Um, so we've looked at that a little bit. So with each case, we code them on, on 200 variables and then put the information into a database. And it's taking us years and years to get all the old cases coded, but we've got over 2,000 of them now in the database. So we can look at various features of the cases. And one thing that we've looked at is mode of death of the previous person. Uh, now, I'll warn you, this graph I'm about to show you looks complicated, but it's, it's not too bad. So going up and down is the number of cases, and then going across is the age when the previous person died. The green bars on top are the natural death cases. All the other colors are the various kinds of unnatural death that the previous person experienced. So the main point of the slide is to show you that we have a lot of unnatural death cases. But it also looks like the people are dying young. Uh, the complicating factor is that people who die unnatural deaths tend to be younger because it's younger folks who do things like drive too fast or drive motorcycles or get into drunken knife fights or whatever it is. Um, but with the database, what we can do is pull out the unnatural death ones, look at just the natural death to see if dying young is a factor that's independent of uh, dying violently. So this next graph is just a typical graph of deaths by age that I, I pulled off the Internet. Uh, again, up and, going up and down is, is the number of people going across is the age when they died. Uh, so it's a typical graph where for most of the lifespan, you just see this gradually upsloping curve as more and more people are dying uh, until finally there's so few people left that, you know, the 80s and 90s and even beyond, then it just drops off. But for the, most of the lifespan, it's just this gradually upsloping curve. Well, with our cases, the curve actually goes the other direction. In fact, a quarter of the cases, the previous person was age 15 or less uh, when he or she died. So there seems to be something about dying violently or dying young that makes it more likely that a child will later talk about that life. Now, as far as where we find these cases, uh, we have now studied over 2,500 cases from around the world. And... Uh, they are easiest to find in cultures with a belief in reincarnation. So I've, I've listed the places where we have the most cases, uh, but that's just because we've had people looking for them there. And in fact, the cases have been found wherever anyone has looked. Uh, they've been found on all the continents except Antarctica, uh, where we have not looked yet. Um, and they have certainly been found in the West as well. So they seem less common here, but it may just be that they're harder to find here because in the places where I've listed, families will start telling people when their kids are talking about a past life and word would spread and, and then our associates would hear about them. Whereas here, families tend to be kind of embarrassed by what their kids are saying and, and often don't tell anyone. Um, so they're harder to find here, but now with the Internet, the families find us. Uh, so we are hearing from American parents all the time about their kids uh, reporting a past life. And, uh, in fact, we have focused on the American cases in, in recent years. Most of them uh, come from families where they had no belief in reincarnation before their kids started talking about a past life. And what we see with these cases is that they have the uh, exact same features that the cases do everywhere else. Uh, so these American children, their cases are proof that 
children's past life memories, that they are not purely a cultural phenomenon that takes place in, in places that have a belief in reincarnation, because these American cases are taking place in here, where we do not have a general belief in reincarnation, and taking places in uh, families that do not have a belief in reincarnation. Now, that raises the question of, could the American cases, could it be due to some sort of psychological disturbance that would cause a kid to t say they remember a past life? So we've done psychological testing with a bunch of them. Um, what we see is that, um, for the, in large part, they are perfectly normal. They, they are not dissociating. They are not, uh, they don't show signs of psychological disturbance. The one thing that comes through in the testing is that they tend to be very bright and very verbal. Uh, but otherwise uh, perfectly ordinary. Now, one of the features of cases which Ryan's did not have, but that many of them do, is uh, a child, uh, many of these children would be born with birthmarks or birth defects that match wounds on the body of the previous person. And these cases fascinated Ian Stevenson, and he spent many years studying them and many years more uh, writing them all up. He eventually published a book called Reincarnation and Biology, which is a two-volume set that's 2,000 pages long, and he covers over 200 such cases. Um, I will now review the 200 cases with you. Um, uh, actually, for the sake of time, I will limit it to a few, but a few that have um, fun-looking pictures. Uh, kind of gruesome, but fun-looking pictures. So the first one, uh, one of the cases was a little girl who uh, remembered the life of a man who got his fingers chopped off as he was being murdered. And the little girl was born with her hands looking like that. There's another case where a little boy remembered the life of a boy in another village who had lost the fingers of his right hand in a fodder chopping machine. And the second little boy was born with his hands looking like that, which is quite an unusual defect to have one hand um, affected so much and the other one being perfectly normal. Um, there was also uh, the case of a boy who remembered a, a man who had been killed by a shotgun blast at the side of his head, and the little boy was born with just a stump for an ear and an underdeveloped right side of his face. Um, Ian also listed 18 cases in which the um, child is born with two birthmarks, the ones that match both the entrance wound and the exit wound on, on the body of a um, gunshot victim. Now, as if these cases aren't strange enough, uh, there's also a phenomenon that Ian called experimental birthmarks. Uh, this is a practice that's done in several places in Asia where after somebody dies, uh, a person will take a substance, usually paste or soot, and make a mark on the body, and make a wish or say a prayer that the person carry the mark with them so that they can be identified in the next life. This is usually done with the expectation that the person will come back into the same family. Um, Ian studied 20 of these cases, and then a colleague and I found 18 more. Uh, one of the ones that we found was a little boy in Thailand. Uh, his grandmother... Uh, before he was born, his grandmother, near the end of his life, near the end of her life, said that she hoped to come back as a male someday, uh, so that she could one day have a mistress, uh, the way her husband did. And after she died, her daughter-in-law took some white paste and just made a mark down the back of her neck. Uh, and then a year later, um, her grandson was born, and. He was born with this mark on, on the back of his neck. Um, I hope that shows up. I can't tell how well things are projecting. Um, and then he talked about being his grandmother. He didn't make a lot of statements about her life, but, but did, uh, did give some details about her life. Um, this next case is also in Thailand. Uh, this little girl, her grandfather died five years before she was born. And after he died... Uh, a family member took some soot from the bottom of a rice pot, and I had one of the villagers put some on his fingers just to show what it looked like, took some soot from the bottom of a rice pot, made a mark on his right leg above his ankle, 
and, and made a wish that he take the mark with him. And then five years later, uh, his granddaughter was born uh, with this mark on her right leg above her ankle. Um, and um, when we saw her, she was only two and a half, and, and she hadn't made any clear statements related to his life, but of course she was still uh, very young. Uh, the last case of this type that I want to tell you about is one of Ian's cases from Burma. Uh, this woman, unfortunately, was the previous person in one of these cases. Uh, she was born with a congenital heart defect, and then when she was 20 years old, she died during open-heart surgery. Um, after she died, three of her classmates volunteered to prepare her body for cremation. They had heard about bodies being marked, so they uh, took some red lipstick and, and marked the back of her neck. Um, and then a year later, her older sister gave birth to a little girl uh, with this, if you can see it, this red area on the back of her neck. Now, as Ian pointed out, they, were, they picked the worst possible place to mark a body because, of course, stork bite birthmarks are fairly common and, and will occasionally persist into, uh, into childhood. Uh, but when he was studying the case, he also saw, um, if you can, you may have to use your imagination, but he also saw that she had this pale white line uh, that was running from about mid-sternum to mid-abdomen that looked like a cardiac surgery scar, except it was uh, lower, at least by the time that Ian met her. Um, and then... As she got old enough to talk, she insisted on being called the, the name of the previous person who had died, and she would also refer to family members by the relationship that that woman had with them. So, for instance, she would always call her mother uh, the, the term for um, um, sister. Um, when Ian investigated the case, he talked with the young women who had marked the body, and he discovered that one of them had never met this little girl. So unannounced, he took the woman to the little girl's house. They walk in, and he says, who is this? And the girl immediately said, Mint Mint Oo, which in fact was the name of, of the woman who had marked the body. Um, all right, so along with the birthmarks, of course, are the statements that the children make about their past life. I mentioned that as young children, the average age when a child starts talking about a past life is 35 months. So it's usually your two- or three-year-old who will start coming out with these things. And some of them do it in sort of a detached way, but many show very strong emotional involvement with this material. So uh, like with Ryan, they will cry about missing their, family, uh, their previous family, um, some of them would show a lot of anger, especially if the previous person was murdered. So I, I had one case where actually the previous person had died in a hunting accident. But anyway, when the little boy was two, he tried to choke the fellow who had accidentally uh, killed the previous person. Um, and it seems that in the stronger cases, it, the kids tend to show more emotion. But even so, they may talk about these things with great intensity one minute, and then they just run off and play the next. And some of them have access to this material at all times, but others have to be in the right frame of mind. So uh, it will often be during relaxed times, uh, like after a warm bath, or, or the American parents will say during a long car ride, uh, the kids will, will start coming out with these things. And then usually by the time they're six or seven, they will stop talking about the past life and, and then just kind of go on with their lives. Um, many of them seem to just forget. Uh, others, it seems to sort of go underground where they're not talking about it, um, probably because once they get started in school, it's a, little, it's a little weird, even in cultures with the belief in reincarnation. Of course, kids don't want to be seen as weird, so they stop talking about the past life and, and then just get wrapped up in, in the current one. Now, as far as what they say about it, they don't tend to come out with enlightened words of wisdom. Um, instead, what they typically do is just focus on things from near the end of the previous life. So uh, three-quarters of them will talk about how the previous person died. And they'll also tend to talk about people or events from near the, uh, the end of the last life. So it's as if the memories have just 
kind of picked up where they left off uh, at, at the last life. And then about 20% of them will also talk about events between lives. Uh, so some of them will talk about after they died that they stayed near the previous family or that some of them just stayed near the area where the previous person was killed. Um, some will talk about going to other realms like heaven. Uh, the American kids may use the word heaven. And then some will describe either watching their future parents from heaven or choosing them or being guided to them and, and then to prepare for uh, their next life. Now, sometimes the statements also include recognitions where the, the kids seem to recognize people or places uh, from the past life. And, and uh, one uh, very new case uh, that involved those is, is an American case I recently studied where uh, the child talked about a, a past life ending in, uh, during the Vietnam War. So um, I got an email one day from a, a mom talking about her five-year-old little boy, Stephen, uh, who started asking if his parents remembered when, when he was in the war. And, and he said how he was in the Army. He talked about being in the jungle as, as well as uh, being on a beach. And uh, then he said that it was 1969. Uh, so his parents asked him if, if it was in Vietnam, and, and he said yes, and gave various details about his gun and, and about trenches and so forth, said he died in an explosion, and also said that he died when he was 21. Um, and then he gave his last name and a nickname that came from the last name. Uh, and I'm not giving those because I wouldn't, I'm not saying those publicly. I wouldn't want anyone to ever kind of trace the previous family and, and um, contact them. Uh, but it was an unusual last name, and he also gave the uh, state where he was from. So his mom one day went to the Vietnam Memorial website and looked up and found that, in fact, there was somebody with that last name uh, from the state that he gave who uh, died when he was 21. Uh, so his mom was fairly shocked by that. Uh, she uh, did not do any more researching, but what she did was she then contacted me. So um, I went and, and visited the family and um, talked with them. And, and before I went, I did do a little more investigating. I um, joined this uh, newspaper archive website, so I was able to access this man's obituary and, and do some studying. So when I went to visit them, I took along some pictures and what I decided to do was to show the little boy a picture of something from that past life along with a control picture uh, that was just a random picture. So the previous person went to a central high school. So I brought along two pictures of central high schools, and I asked him if he uh, recognized either one, and he pointed to the second one and said, I, I've been to that one. And, and that was the one that the uh, um, previous person went to. Um, I also showed him a picture of the previous person's house, and he said he didn't remember either one of those. And I mean, I don't know how the appearance of the house may have changed over the decades. But I also showed him pictures of um, uh, the house across the street, uh, along with a, a control picture actually from Charlottesville. Hopefully, it's not someone's house here. But um, uh, but he pointed to the first one and said he remembered that one, which was the, the one from the past life. Um, so after I came back, I, I continued to do researching, and it's amazing what you can find online. So uh, since I belong to classmates.com, I was able to access this fellow's high school yearbook from the year that he graduated, from 1968. That yearbook is available online. Um, so then I sent some pairs of pictures to Stephen's mom um, by email for her to test him with those. Now, the good thing about those tests, when I showed him the pictures, you know, you can wonder, well, maybe I knew which was the correct picture. Maybe he was picking up cues on the way that I presented them or my face or something where he could guess which one was right. But with these, his mom didn't know which one was right either. So there's no chance that, that he picked up on, on what was the correct answer. So, um, again, I'm not, I, I can't tell how these are projecting, but I showed pictures from the yearbook of, of the administration of, of the principal and so forth, um, of students and also a page of teachers, and uh, he got every one of them right. 
So uh, afterwards, when I emailed mom back and told her that, she said, oh, wow, that is crazy. She said he seemed so casual about it. Um, but he'd gotten all those. And, and then I contacted the previous person. I was able to track down, despite several moves on her part, I was able to track down the previous person's sister. And I wrote to her, and her daughter wrote back. And she sent some family photos. Uh, so again, I sent Stephen's mom pictures of uh, the previous person's father, and uh, he picked the second one, which was correct. He said he wasn't 100% sure, but he picked that one. Also, one said the mom, but the I didn't have a good picture of the mother, and, and he said he didn't recognize either one, and then said he was tired of looking at pictures. Um, <laughs> but anyway, for the ones that he made a choice on, he was six for six. And that would be like trying to get heads with flipping a coin six times and getting heads every time. It's quite unlikely, so it only happens one out of 64 times. Um, so in science studies, a result is considered statistically significant if there's less than a 5% chance that it just happened by luck. Well, with these six out of six pictures, that would be a 1.5% chance of it happening by luck. So these tests are at least some evidence that Stephen was connected uh, with this young man uh, who was uh, killed in Vietnam when he was uh, 21 years old. Um, now, along with the statements that the children make, um, there are often behaviors that go along uh, with them too. So I've mentioned that the kids often show a lot of emotions, and they will show um, emotions toward the individual family members that often fit with the relationship that the previous person had. So, for instance, a, a little girl may be very deferential toward the previous husband or previous parents, but very bossy toward the younger siblings, even though those younger siblings are much older than the child is. Uh, those emotions will usually fade, as the statements do, but not always. And there's at least one case where the little boy... Uh, eventually grew up to marry the widow of the previous person. Um, she was obviously much older than he was, but uh, that, in fact, is what happened. So phobias, in, in the violent death cases, over 35% of the kids will show an intense fear toward the mode of death. So, for instance, there was one little girl who... Essentially, from the time she was born, she hated being put in water. So even as an infant, it would take three adults to hold her down to give her a bath. And then when she got old enough to talk, talked about the life of a girl in another village who had drowned in an accident. Um, likes and dislikes. Uh, the most obvious food examples are, um, Ian studied a couple of dozen cases of kids in Burma who said that there were Japanese soldiers who were killed in Burma during World War II, and they would often um, complain about the spicy Burmese food and nasty raw fish and that sort of thing instead. Uh, addictive substances. Um, this picture, which is a young child smoking a cigarette, uh, this is not one of our cases, but it could be, because unfortunately it seems that addictive substances can sometimes continue their allure even across lifetimes. So if the, if the previous person was a heavy smoker or a big drinker, uh, the kids will often try to sneak cigarettes or even uh, sneak alcohol. Uh, the themes in play, kids will often show themes repeatedly, most often the occupation of the previous person. Uh, so there was one little boy where he would, the previous person had been a biscuit shopkeeper, and this little boy would play at being a biscuit shopkeeper for hours on end. He would refuse to do anything else, including his schoolwork, and fell behind, and, and his mom felt like he was really never able to catch up. And then about 10% of our kids will talk about a life as a member of the opposite sex. And many of them show what's called gender nonconformity. So as, as you probably know, most young kids show... Uh, what's called gender-typical behaviors. So little girls are more likely to play with dolls. Little boys are more likely to play with cars or trucks. And, you know, there are environmental as well as biological reasons for this. But about 3% of boys and 5% of girls will show gender nonconformity where they'll do the opposite. Where in our cases of, of where the child remembers a past life as a member of the opposite sex, 80% of those will show gender nonconformity. Uh, but with all of these, the, the behaviors and, and emotions, they all 
tend to fade as the kids get older, uh, and then they just go on to, to lead ordinary lives. Um, but I want to finish out with a case that, that has uh, a number of, of behavioral-type things. Um, this is a case you may actually have heard of. Uh, James Leininger is a case that uh, got a fair amount of press at one point. It was on TV some, and, and his parents eventually wrote a book about their experiences. Uh, but he's a little boy who remembered the, uh, or seemed to remember the life of a pilot who was killed during World War II. And it's now believed that that uh, pilot's uh, identity has, has been established. Um, and James is just this uh, son of this Christian couple in, in Louisiana. And his father in particular was quite opposed to the idea of reincarnation but before James uh, seemed to start remembering a past life. So the story starts when James is 22 months old and his father took him to a flight museum and James was fascinated by the World War II exhibit. Uh, he kept insisting on going back there uh, to the point that he and his dad spent three hours at the museum. And then a couple months later, around the time of his second birthday, he started having terrible nightmares multiple times a week in which he would kick his legs up in the air and scream, airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out. And I talked with his aunt after meeting with, with James and his parents, and she said, you cannot believe how horrible these things were to witness, that it really looked like somebody fighting for his life. And then during the day, James would take his little toy airplanes, and he would say, airplane crash on fire, and bam, he would slam them against the family's coffee table. And he did this over and over again, and, and his parents are apparently tolerant people uh, because... Their coffee table had dozens of scratches and dents from airplane crash on fire, bam. And then um, when you combine this play, which looks like what we call post-traumatic play, with the nightmares, James really looked like a traumatized child. Uh, but he had not been through any trauma, at least during this life. And then his parents were able to have several conversations with him about this material during the day. And he said how his plane had crashed on fire, um, how it had been shot down by the Japanese. And he said that he flew a Corsair. Now, I'd never heard of a Corsair, but it was a, it was a special plane that was developed during World War II. And after this case got some publicity, uh, critics said, well, he just saw a Corsair at the Flight Museum and the name stuck with him. And in fact, if you go to the Flight Museum's website, you see that there is a Corsair there. James's dad said that there was not one there when he and James went. So I looked into it and found that, in fact, he was right. The museum had had a Corsair, but it had crashed at a public air show a year before, and then they didn't get a replacement until three years later. So that is not where James learned about a Corsair. He also said that he flew off of a boat, and his parents asked him the name of the boat, and he said, Natoma. Now, I think if most of us were going to try to guess the name of a U.S. aircraft carrier, it would be a long time before we said Natoma. And, in fact, his dad said, well, that sounds Japanese to me. And James said, uh, no, it was American. Um, so <laughs> after that conversation, his dad went and did an online search and eventually found this material on the USS Natoma Bay. He printed it out, and at the bottom, the footer gives a date when he printed it out, which is August 27, 2000. James was born in April of 98. So this documents that by the time James is 28 months old, that Natoma was part of the case. Um, and um, it turns out that the USS Natoma Bay was an escort carrier that was stationed in the Pacific during World War II. Now, James' parents also asked him who he was then, and he always just said, me or James, which they didn't make anything of at the time. Uh, then one time they asked him who else was there, and he said, Jack, Jack Larson. This was all when he was two. And then when he was two and a half, his father bought this book on Iwo Jima to give to his father, James's grandfather. And he was looking through it one day when James came and got in his lap, 
And they got to this page that showed a picture of Iwo Jima. And James pointed at it and said, that's where my plane was shot down. And his dad said, what? And he said, my airplane got shot down there, Daddy. And that just floored his dad that his two-and-a-half-year-old was talking that way. And in fact, his dad learned that the Natoma Bay did take part in the Iwo Jima operation. Then when he got old enough to draw, James drew dozens and dozens of pictures of planes and uh, battle scenes, and he always signed them James III. Now, I thought that might be because he was three years old, so I asked his parents, and they said, no, they asked James about it, and he said, I'm the third James, I'm James III. So with all this going on, his parents did begin to wonder if he was remembering a past life. So when he was four and a half, uh, James's dad went to a Natoma Bay reunion, and he learned that there had been a, a Jack Larson on the ship. He had been looking for Jack Larson among the war dead, uh, but this Jack Larson survived the war and was even still alive. Uh, so James's dad went out and, and met with him and learned that he was on the ship during the Iwo Jima operation. He also learned that one and only one pilot from the Natoma Bay had been killed during the Iwo Jima operation. This was a young man from Pennsylvania named James Houston. Since he was the only one that was killed, that means that if, if James Leininger was remembering in past life, it had to be Houston's life. So what we can do is compare what James said with Houston's life. Now, James's parents said he, he talked some about family life before the war, but we don't have documentation of those statements that was made before Houston was identified. Um, but what we can do, I've listed the items where we have definite documentation that was made before anyone knew anything about James Houston. So uh, James signed his drawings, James III. Well, James Houston was James Jr., which would make James Leininger the third James. James said he flew off the Natoma. Houston was a pilot on the USS Natoma Bay. Uh, James said he flew a Corsair. Houston had flown a Corsair. He was actually flying a different plane when he was killed, but he was part of the squadron that tested the Corsair for the Navy. James said he was shot down by the Japanese. Uh, Houston was shot down by the Japanese. James said that he died at Iwo Jima. Houston was the one Natoma Bay pilot that was killed during the Iwo Jima operation. James said one day, quote, My airplane got shot in the engine and crashed in the water, and that's how I died. Eyewitnesses reported that Houston's plane was, quote, hit head-on right on the middle of the engine. James had nightmares of his plane crashing and sinking in the water. Houston's plane crashed in the water and quickly sank. And James said that Jack Larson was there, and Jack Larson was the pilot of the plane next to Houston's on the day that he was killed. So I will stop there. Um, for more information, please visit our website, uh, uvadops.org. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you. We've got about five minutes for maybe two or three questions. If you've got a question, raise your hand. We'll try to grab you. Um, so do any of these children have cultural transgressions, so they're born in the United States, but then remember a past life, say, in Asia? And if so, do their memories reflect these cultural norms in their past life? We have a few cases, uh, what we call international cases, but most of them are in the same place. And it seems that to come back with intact memories, typically... It's from fairly close by and from fairly recently for, for the memories to come through intact. And even the international ones, there tends to be a connection. So like I mentioned, the kids in Burma who said they were Japanese pilots who were killed there during World War II. So with the American ones, I mean, occasionally kids will give general terms like I had a past life in Africa or Asia, but they give very few details. So it's very vague. So I can't really answer that as far as the specifics with the different cultures. With what you said about birthmarks and birth defects, 
Um, has there been any investigation into or anything that connects it to epigenetics and, and how that might have become an expression from whatever was brought in on an energetic level? No, there's not been in, any investigation. We have certainly wondered about how all that can happen. And, you know, with epigenetics, many people may know this, but it's been more or less a recent discovery of the past few decades. I mean, in medical school, I never heard the term epigenetics, but it's factors that influence which genes get turned on and off, and those can be transmitted um, um, with the genes, but it's not the actual genes themselves. So whether, yeah, if, if you're open to accepting these cases, does that mean consciousness can play a role in what genes get displayed? And, and, and I would certainly wonder about that. How do you reconcile the beginning of the development of the brain of a four-year-old with memories that occurred in somebody whose brain had already been developed? Well, I mean, we know nothing about the mechanism that might be involved with this. But, I mean, the idea is that, again, if you're open to these cases, that somehow there is at least a part of the consciousness that has continued on from one life to the next one and then influenced the brain in some way so that those memories are there or at least those memories can be accessed. Um, but, you know, you certainly raise a good question that the two brains themselves would be quite different. Um, but somehow um, there's some element of consciousness that is consistent from, from one to the other. And that, I know that's a non-specific answer, but that's about all that we can say about it at this point. It kind of is in alignment with what I wanted to ask. If we agree that the universe recycles energy and matter, when I throw away a newspaper and recycle it, it doesn't have the same identity over and over again. If reality is um, layered much like the invisible biosphere light spectrum, um, why couldn't tapping into past lives merely be some aspect of the brain that is connected like a receiver? And it's a trapped memory. Um, and there is some aspect of the person, whether it's the, you know, the uh, physical characteristics that show up or an event in their life that makes them tap into it rather than I was this person. Um, yes, so... I mean, the most sort of obvious, straightforward example is that they remember a life that they lived before, but I, I certainly suspect that it's more complex than that because I think that reality is more complex than that. And a lot of people have, um, for at least since the time of William James, have talked about how uh, clearly the brain is necessary to for us to have consciousness. That doesn't mean that the brain produces consciousness. It may be that it, um, um, uh, blocking out the word, but transmits consciousness that is actually uh, a separate entity from the physical world, which is actually what I believe. So, yes, these kids, for whatever reason, are somehow tapped into this element of consciousness. But I do think it's more complex than just this soul or whatever you call it, sort of bouncing from one life to another like you know, a line of beads. I think reality is, is again, is far more interesting than that. Yeah. Thank you so much. On behalf of Lifetime Learning, we have a small gift for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. And we'll be doing...